The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. The members of the Tribulation Force face their most dangerous challenges. Some are murder suspects. Others test the precarious line between subversion and being revealed. It's the midway point of the seven-year tribulation. A renowned man is dead, and the world mourns. In heaven, the battle of the ages continues to rage until it spills onto earth, and all hell breaks loose. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B.J. by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B.J. The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy Gavin Russell. Well, last episode was kind of cool, huh? Yep, it was really fun finally getting to the cinematic universe of Left Behind, <laughs> but now we've gone back to old reliable of uh, text version in the form of the books. That's right. So we're back. We're jumping into the novels we're past halftime it is time to go into the third quarter of the series we are beginning today part one of the indwelling the beast takes possession it starts out like the action is just on fire literally chapter one begins where the end of uh, assassins drops off right right but before that we have a little bit of prelude mm-hmm What'd you think about them adding the players section again? I, mean, I don't know if that's going to continue all the way through. I don't remember. It's kind of nice to catch up. I mean, maybe not for us mm-hmm. because we're reading these in such rapid succession. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We know all these people are. Uh, I really like it. It uh, it kind of gives you a fresh like, all right, this person's here. This person's here because there's so many chess pieces now and they're all in different corners of the world. It's nice to have like, okay, this is where this person is. This is where this person is. So it's a nice little feature. Well, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but um, we're getting to the part of the tribulation where those chess pieces are going to start disappearing. Yep, falling off the board. Yeah. (laughs) So we begin, just like Assassins did, with the Believers, the Enemies, and the Undecided. The needle hasn't really moved uh, since Assassins. That's not really what that book was about. There wasn't really a big focus on evangelizing, so the roster's pretty much the same. We get a little recap of the end of Assassins, and I think it ends on the... We have our assassin now, don't we? We know going into this that at least Leon, the GC Brass, and David know who the assassin is. Because that was a big thing that when you got to the end of Assassins, you're like, they don't tell me? Yep. I don't know who it was. And uh, my prediction um, at the end of last uh, time was Hattie Durham. And uh, we'll see how that prediction plays out. Yeah, we'll see by the pretty much by the end of this episode. I think we can safely say because they don't come right out and say it, but it is very heavily implied. I was dumbfounded when I found out who killed. Really? Yeah. I mean, That was your least likely one? Yeah. Okay. well, we'll talk about it when we get there. 
Unlike some of the previous novels, we actually get a pretty extensive prologue that isn't like a recap of a previous novel. We get that little tiny nugget and then go directly into this prologue chapter that is from Leah's perspective. Yep, it's titled Monday of Gala Week. Right, and it's actually what is happening to Leah kind of concurrently to the assassination. Mm -hmm. uh, because Leah called Buck, she was trying to call Rayford. We get to see now her perspective on what was going on then. Right off the bat, she is just talking her way into a maximum security facility. Yes, the Belgium facility for female rehabilitation, if you uh, didn't remember the acronym. Yeah. Uh, and she's she's going in under her alias Donna Clendenin, uh, and then she meets a guard um, named Croy. So uh, he's a sparkling water flavor. Yeah, um, um, and in the audiobook, I think they'd pronounce it Qua. Qua? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And one thing really stuck out to me in this section, and it's kind of Jerry doing a little bit of housekeeping with how superhumanly competent some of his characters have gotten. Mm -hmm. He makes a point to mention that we are at truly like Avengers Endgame, 50% of the population is gone. Yes. Right? He makes a point to say, and I don't know if you highlighted this, but he mentions something to the effect of the GC is less competent than you would expect from the global totalitarian government because they're short-staffed and the only people that they can get are kind of the bottom of the barrel for a lot of these things. So when she's able to do something like put in a set of false teeth and call herself a fake name and just sort of waltz into this maximum security prison, it's likely because they're short-staffed, everyone's running around trying to do what they need to do. They just don't have the personnel to be as secure as they should be. Right. We're going to find out in some later books how efficient that they can get. But um, in the meantime, so when we see these things happening, we're like, man, this is a bunch of Keystone cop shit going on with the GC. <laughs> um, that's why. I'm going to go ahead and skip forward in my notes because there's another line that gets said that's a little bit more grim <sighs> about it. It specifically says that the judgments and all of the depopulation of the earth were possibly God getting rid of some of the more competent, dangerous, and incorrigible individuals before the final battle. Oh! Like debuffing the GC, basically, before everything goes down. Down. And since his divine hand of protection is on his people, they don't get lost for the most part. Obviously, we've had some casualties on the Tribulation Force side, but basically saying that God is taking out most of the competent people to make the Tribulation Force's job easier. Well, them, uh, these guys aren't going to uh, convert, so lightning bolt, lightning bolt, lightning bolt. Oh, it's real bad, and I will circle back around to that when we get to that line. I can't remember who says it. Okay. So she makes her way in, and she is kind of stonewalled. She can't talk to Hattie. They're not really giving her any information. The fact that they agreed to see her at all mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. She gets reached out to by a new character, mm -hmm. and we kind of get the weird, soft, low-key racism right off the bat, boys. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, it's been a... Assassins didn't have a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. It was, and I don't remember Apollyon having a ton either, but it's good to be back. Yep, we got uh, Ming Toy. So Ming Toy, the first thing that she is described as is by her voice, she was clearly Asian. Mm. You know, saying somebody's ethnicity isn't a problem, but when you find out that they got their job... Uh, because they have a stratosphere IQ and knows martial arts. <laughs> oh, you love to see it, folks. You love it. Yep. The Asian character is super smart and knows kung fu. <laughs> Thanks, Jer. 
So Ming Toy, to back up just a little bit, when Lee is trying to get into Buffer, her attempts are thwarted, and then she goes back to her hotel, only to be followed by this commanding officer from Buffer. Um, she meets her outside. She's immediately cuffed, and this character, Ming, leans in and just like, just go with it. No, just, hey, let me arrest you. Mm-hmm. So Lee is fearing for her life. She thinks she's compromised. They make their way back. Ming reserves an interrogation room so no one can see in, no one can hear. Once uh, they make sure they're alone, make sure that it's like, hey, there's, it's private, no viewing, no bugs. She, she reveals the mark on her forehead. Yep, she's like, check the mark. I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like how that's just become like, all right, show us your mark. All right, we're good. All right. Which is interesting because we have already had a character fake the mark. Yeah. I don't think ever have they gone back to that possibility. I don't think so either. Like, it's not even, like, I think, well, I think with uh, Leah, Leah, like, when Rayford was going all mad boy Rayford, they had, like, maybe a slight moment where only, like, once or twice even had the suspicion. Okay. okay. And because to talk about OPSEC for the Tribulation Force, like, their handshake should just be kind of a smudge, yeah. right? Like, you just kind of palm the top of their head and just smudge it with your thumb. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. their handshake. <laughs> you know, like in the Old Testament where the legend is they used to draw part of the fish and then, you know, if you were a believer, you drew the other, other half part of the fish. It. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, it's just, yeah, the little thumb smudge. But they don't do that. Yeah. So Ming Toy is a commander of the buffer facility. So she has actually worked her way up to a very high position in the GC. She has a brother who is a believer and parents who are not. To keep in line with the stereotypes, she does describe her parents as overly concerned with their child's success. Lots of stereotyping going on here, which at this point, I'm not surprised. Right. Um, we get a couple of little lore drops, though. We get the first mention, I think, of Nyx as currency. I think so. If, if, they had, if they had mentioned it before, it was only in passing. Yes, and they have changed the time zone in the Holy Land to Carpathian time, mm-hmm. which is all happening like either right at or immediately after his death. But the big drop here is that Ming lets Leah know Hattie was released. Ah. She didn't escape. They just let her go. Yeah, which is really suspicious because uh, they're like, okay, they're again, they're using Hattie as bait to try to figure out where the safe house is. Correct. And that will be kind of a through line for the information that Leah holds and is trying to get to the rest of the force, which is going to be complicated by something that happens in subsequent chapters. Mm -hmm. So that's going to take us out of the prologue and then into chapter one. Right, and like I said, we start out from Buck's point of view seconds after the gunshot. Oh yeah, so we got a little bit of this in Assassins. We got Buck's POV. He was standing next to the speakers. He got to hear Carpathia's death rattle. The but I did everything last. We get to hear it again, mm-hmm. and then Buck, I think, climbs up on the scaffolding over the stage to kind of watch the scene play out because everyone's scattering and he doesn't want to get trampled. Yeah. So Buck Williams' action star clambers up this scaffolding and he gets to watch the scene in chaos as the stage is half collapsing, half getting knocked down by the stampeding crowd. Um, He looks down and he sees Yakov running for Hyam. He is struggling to get Hyam away in his power chair. As he is running for Hyam, Yakov is struck by a GC guard uh, with the butt of a rifle and it breaks his neck. Hyam's chair also collapses, batteries go everywhere. Yeah, the chair completely rolls off the stage and falls 12 feet to the ground. So we think we may have just lost both Yakov and Hayam. Yep. Buck actually does get to Yakov, confirms that there is no pulse, so 
R.I.P. Yakov. You know, he yep. says, I Pouring know out. I'll meet him in heaven. Yep. So Yakov's out. Man, like right off the bat, just getting to death. Yep. And then Buck descends the stage. He climbs down to find the power chair, like you said, kind of in pieces. The batteries have fallen out. No Haim. Yep, Haim's gone. So you get a brief moment of, oh, did we lose Haim? Well, we kind of did, but the, there's no body. Yeah, so maybe like a good Samaritan like carried um, this like old frail man stroke addled man i mean he is israel's favorite son so yeah. you know if people saw him they'd be like oh my god that's high rosenzweig let me help him up yeah know? yeah yeah cut immediately to rayford for a really short vignette running through the crowd holding up his the skirts of his robe not even concerned about blending in he drops the saber yep Rookie move, dude. Rookie move, dude. Yep. I mean, you should at least dump it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but he tr- just drops it and runs. You know, he's on. He's full adrenaline now. Even Ray at this point is like, did I kill him? Yeah, but and <laughs> I don't think I killed him. And even if he did, he, like that's not it's not giving it any like relief at that moment because of all the chaos. Right. Because to recap the moment of the assassination, Ray had leveled the gun at Carpathia, who was at the lectern. He was bumped by someone in the crowd, the gun went off, the projectile destroyed the lectern, ripped the back curtain down, everybody dove for cover. We know that this gun doesn't take a whole lot of accuracy Mm -hmm. to be lethal because it is a crazy sci-fi gun, but Ray is not even convinced that he was that accurate. Right, but that does, uh, in his mind, that doesn't even matter because even if he wasn't accurate, there's cameras all over that saw him pointing this gun towards the stage. So in the eyes of the GC, he's already, he killed the man. You got to believe that people like screamed and dove out of the way, like that something happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you see a dude level a gun in the middle of a crowd like that, like there's going to be a reaction. Yes. And we already know, like you said, that the GC's got footage. Mm-hmm. From there, we cut to Mac. So we're back to Mac. This is continuing the tradition from Assassins, where we are cutting back and forth beyond Ray and Buck into other characters. Um, so Mac calls Abdullah. He's like, hey, man, we got to get the 216 down here as fast as possible. Um, and is making his way to the platform as Nikolai is dying. So a lot of these vignettes are happening concurrently. Leon is cradling Nikolai in his arms. You know, the don't die, Excellency, I need you. Mm-hmm. Um, we compared that to kind of the Madonna with her her son at yeah, the cross, yeah, yeah. right, last time. I, and that's the image I still have in my head, you know. <laughs> As Mac is running up, these other GC personnel are trying to talk Leon down, trying to get him away from the body so that the EMTs can help him. They're trying to get him to a doctor. And Leon does almost a racism. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is Jerry trying to make him you know unlikable and a bad guy which is really funny just kind of considering all the stereotyping that jerry just did in the prologue but you know different flavors of racism i guess i guess because leon says because i think they suggest that they take him to a hospital can you find that line that these people let's see yeah he had just made eye contact with mac and seemed about to say something when he turned on the emt are you crazy these these people are not qualified. We must get him to New Babylon. Yeah, that's the line. Because <laughs> they're in Jerusalem right now, and he's looking around. He's like, these, these ju- people. <laughs> in the middle of Leon having a fit, Carpathia flatlines. Yep. Which is perfect. Yeah, and so he leans over the body and just buries his face in, like, his bloody chest 
and just start sobbing. Just I around. imagine just wailing, like doing the Rayford wail almost. If we want to cut back to uh, Solar, <laughs> right? Don't drape the body. Let's load. Let's load him up now. Say nothing about his condition until we're back home. And yeah, so they're they're going like media silent on this because they don't want to announce it to the world yet. Does Leon actually seem somewhat competent? during this because I'm kind of back and forth on how Jerry writes him because sometimes like he is somewhat competent like yeah. he's, he's a sycophant and he's an egomaniac not quite on the level of Nikolai but he's definitely like got his job for a reason like he's not a total boob. Yeah. Uh, I'd say in this scene, he's, this is one of his less competent moments, but he's also in shock. Right. So some he's of panicking. that lack of, of uh, competence, we can uh, attribute to that. So I want to ask you something. Yeah. How much of the plan, and by the plan, I mean on like a cosmic supernatural scale, do you think that Leon was privy to? I think because clearly Nikolai wasn't even privy to all of it. Yeah. Okay. So one, uh, Leon does not know that the beast is about to take p possession because all of that grief with uh, Carpathia's death, that's all real. He, um, he feels like, all right, this guy's never coming back. So he doesn't know that. Uh, probably, though, since he's seen Carpathia do magic, especially on him, him. Yeah, especially on him. I think at least, like, I want to say he at least knows something about the, the, the Dark Lord they're working well, that's for. That's what I was going to say. Do you think he has an inkling as to who's paying the bills because clearly nikolai does mm -hmm. nikolai very does i i'm gonna go with leon doesn't know like by name okay we're working for satan but he believes that carpathia is kind of standing in that that role yeah and there's the, like the a curtain stops behind with him, yeah. him right yeah, yeah. and that leon if he could get the stars out of his eyes for Nikolai, might start to suspect that there is some power behind him. Yes. But at this point, at least in Leon's view, Nikolai is divine and that's where it stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think, I think I'm with you there. Mm -hmm. um, so we cut to Buck for a brief moment, is escaping the scene, and he immediately calls Hannah Laura mm -hmm. because he has to tell her about Yakov. And to make sure that she's okay. So they're at the compound with Hannah Laura's mother. He tells her Yakov is dead and he hears a scream. Oh. And he assumes immediately, he's like, oh, it's Hannah Laura's mother. She must have understood what's going on. Oh, yeah. She says, Buck, they're here. And then the phone goes down. Yeah, after she confirms GC. Yeah. So the GC have shown up at Hyam's compound. We're now fearing the worst. Back on the 216, Leon is basically just shifting the blame to everyone he can. He's finding every opportunity to lash out and to boss people around. Like, he's he's trying to find his comfort zone. The one person he's not lashing out at is David. Yeah. He goes to David, and he's like, I need all satellite communication shut down. Shut down the cell soul network. Not for long, but we can't let these people, whoever did this, have a way to communicate with each yeah. other. Initially, shut it down. Initially, he doesn't give the order to shut it down. He just says, scramble the satellites. But David's like, all right, we can't do that. We can just shut down the entire network. Right, I forgot that because, yeah, yeah. Leon doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, and David kind of is like, yeah, I know what he wants, so I'll just shut it down. Mm -hmm. Which this kind of, even though it is a curse for uh, everyone involved because, oh, all the connections going down, that would that also kind of uh, helps people kind of fly under the radar a little bit. It is so going to help. It's a blessing them out. and a curse. Uh huh. Yep. It is going to help them out. It's going to change the playing field at least for this portion of the book. Yes. The next thing that Leon orders is he demands that a cast 
be made of Nikolai's whole body. Oh, boy. He wants it immediately. Yeah. So he's like, do we have a big enough tub or tank in the palace to do this? And they're like, yeah, I guess. He's like, we'll do it immediately. Okie doke. Yep. What do you want that for? Doesn't matter. Just do it. Yep, so they order, like, a bunch of, like, plastic, plastery stuff and just get shipped off there. Yep, Leon's making some weird demands now. Anything can be done, Excellency. I'm sorry, I mean, Commander. Fortunato cleared his throat. Yes, please, Doctor. Don't call me Excellency. At least not yet. And do arrange for a cast of the potentate's body. Yeah, don't call me Excellency or, uh, you know, not yet. Oh, yeah, because he's like, he knows he's next in line. Yeah, he knows. Like, he knows that this is going to be his gig. But he's like, oh, it's not time yet. You know, the potent oh, state Oh, I still couldn't are, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even buried our fine leader. Right, right, right. <laughs> so that's going to book it into chapter two. So we get an Annie and David is where we start out. And they're kind of throwing around theories. And they do this a few times. I think Zion does it. I think we get it here. And I think we get it one other time. That they're wondering if the GC is planning on the resurrection, when it's going to happen. Everybody's kind of like looking. If you're in the know, if you're in the tribulation force, like, all right, is he going to pop up? on the plane is he gonna walk out of the coffin like when is this gonna happen if you read the bible and you can make some lore assumptions you already know how long it's gonna take for Mm -hmm. him to resurrect if you went to sunday school you probably know spoilers we'll get there (laughs) um and then there's a really weird line and i wrote bad line (laughs) next to it because they're kind of talking about is he gonna be the same person when he comes back and ostensibly david says no that he will be indwelt. And I think Annie says, what does that mean? And he goes, well, indwelt means indwelt. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's a bad line. Because yeah, yeah. you're in American vernacular, we would say possessed. Yeah. Like, we would have said indwelt. Yeah, d- don't define a word with the same word that, d- that people don't understand the first time. Yeah, like, it's real bad. Um, then he says, can you give me the analogy that he says? He kind of starts to explain it and while you're doing that i'm gonna pull up the actual let's definition. see when i was promoted i moved to the quarters of that doctor who is reassigned to um, australia remember it's the same place same walls same bed same lav everything it looks the same but it's not i'm the new dweller okay that's the analogy that he makes now the dictionary definition of indwelling which might explain why they use this instead of possessed to be permanently present in someone's soul or mind to possess spiritually. Mm-hmm. That might be why they chose that. Also, it kind of sounds cool. Yeah. Instead of just calling it the possession that sounds like every demon horror movie that's ever come out. I don't think that that word ever appears in scripture, at least in any translation I've ever seen. So they end it on David saying that it just means no more Mr. Nice Guy. And I just said, ugh. <laughs> God, ugh. Like, of all the cliches you could have thrown out, that's the one you're going to pick? God. So after No More Mr. Nice Guy, we cut back to Ray. Ray kind of has an easy time getting to Tel Aviv and getting to the airport, and there's the Gulfstream just waiting on him. He doesn't get detained. He doesn't get stopped. He doesn't get questioned. There's no roadblocks. I'm guessing that the ease of travel is some combination of, like, him being blessed and going through the chaos and sort of the lack of personnel that we've talked about before, because it's Ray that mentions God sort of winnowing the flock of the GC in this scene. I want to take a minute, though. We get a lot of talk about the supernatural gifts and bonuses that you get from being on God's side in yeah. this section of the book. I was thinking about it the other day because I was listening to one of my favorite D&D podcasts, uh, Dimension 20. Mm-hmm. 
you played latest, like fifth edition D D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the most common so I played. When you're a cleric and you do a bless. Yeah. Right? Don't they get to roll like an extra die? Yeah, with yeah. It? You I get a little so. little bonus, mm-hmm. right? When Christians talk about being blessed or like that there is a blessing upon you or something like that. That's really what they're saying mm-hmm. is that God is just making things a little bit easier. So when you see that in these books or any kind of Christian contemporary text, that's normally what they're saying. Like not that God is making everything better, but just that things go a little bit easier. So we can kind of assume that Ray might have a little bit of a blessing on him here. They name drop the one of their hometowns, Kalamazoo, Michigan, in this one. There's a guy that stops Rayford on the runway named Wyatt. And that's where he's from. And he's like, being like, hey, I got to like uh, check yeah, your Ray, plane. Ray says that he's from Kalamazoo. Yeah. yeah. Like Jerry is, right? Jerry's yeah, yeah. from Kalamazoo? I believe so. Yeah. Which like, you know, it's Michigan. It's not that far away from Illinois. So. Mm-hmm. so you're right. Yeah. He does get detained by a guard. This is pretty much the only opposition that he's run against. So this Wyatt kid is like, hey, uh, Mr. Steele, have a great flight. And then gets a radio communication and is like, whoa, 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 hold up. Just got an order in from HQ. I got to do a full check of the plane. Ray's already like almost wheels up. He's almost ready to go. And he kind of does a little bit of like fast talking and he's he's able to talk his way out of it, but has the inner monologue of like, I might have to run this kid over with this plane. (laughs) Yeah, I think like his excuse is, you know, like after you start the plane, you can't open the door. So I have to turn this thing back off. It'd be like a whole hassle for you already in a hurry you know like do i look like a suspicious guy to you yeah come on yeah, come on come on like yeah, come on well, what am i gonna be the guy that tried to shoot carpathia oh sure yeah me look at his face it's not me <laughs> so he does that he kind of hits him with some techno babble that he's completely made up and manages to get past the kid and start to take off This is the moment where we talked about God removing his most incorrigible enemies ahead of the final epic battle. Only the inept had survived, (laughs) which I just wrote, hold up. (laughs) Um, let's talk about this for a second. Why does God need to debuff the GC ahead of whatever battle is coming? I mean, we know what's coming, but. Why does God need to do it that way? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because he's having, again, to like work through the believers. So he's just like, let me at least make it like easier for them to like alleviate their suffering, maybe. But you know what then, would be easier? Like a legion of angels or something. Don't, I don't do know. any of this stuff that you've done as God so far. <laughs> like, I, cause, and I'm jumping right to that because I could say, like, send angels to protect everyone or just get rid of Satan already or do a, look anything would be easier than the way that God has like done a Rube Goldberg machine to make all this happen. It's, it's very frustrating. And I'm sure by the time we get to the book entitled Armageddon, I'm going to have more to say. Actually, I guarantee you I will have more to say about this. And the fact that there is a battle at all is very dumb. Right. But that isn't even Tim and Jerry's fault. Right. That's kind of prophecy's fault. It is a little bit Tim's fault because mm-hmm. it's how Tim is interpreting the prophecy, but not as much this time. I'm not going to lay that 100% at their feet. The Bible is convoluted and very often doesn't make sense. But you all knew that already. But like we said, Ray's able to talk his way past the one guard and gets wheels up and kind of scoots his way on toward Greece, suddenly realizing that he is going to go without any satellite navigation because the communication satellites have been shut down. Cell Soul is inoperable. 
So, speaking of communications being down, uh, Buck can't reach Ray. Yeah, and that's going to be a big problem because he's been supposed to, like, collect Leah without any communication. He doesn't know if, like, that's still on, like, where to even do that. So he's flying blind as well. He's not sticking to the plan, which is kind of a bad thing when Mm -hmm. communication goes out. Now he's just kind of trying to go on intuition. But he makes his way to Hyam's compound because he's kind of had to divert course because something has gone wrong with Hannah Laura and her mother. So he's about to reach the compound and he's kind of thinking to himself, what's he going to do when he gets there? If the GC is going to have to fight these guys. And he says something like he kind of leaves all the macho action star stuff to Ray. And I'm like, nah, dude, you're the one who's been the action star for like six books. (laughs) What are you talking about? You're the one who's like Metal Gear Buck and Super Hacker Buck and Kung Fu Buck. Like, we've had so many names for you. And Kurt Cameron Buck is offended. Oh, yeah. Kurt Cameron Buck's like, yeah, I'm going to need you to, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm the star of this trilogy. Yeah. uh, Put my face the biggest on the box. (laughs) Uh, I get top billing because I am star of small screen Kurt Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) We're looking at the case. Kurt Cameron staring off into the middle distance like Desperado by the Eagles just started playing. The only <laughs> other character on the case is, uh, I think, one of the witnesses just in the background. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's one of the witnesses. And he, in his head, describes himself as Buck Williams' freedom fighter raconteur. <laughs> and I just wrote, come the f*** on. Yeah, he's a swashbuckling Force veteran. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, man, I'm making a rookie move just coming into this dark corner with a flashlight. Every time Buck does something from now on, I just want him to be like, ha He's carrying a little rapier. (laughs) Little Princess Bride. Come with me if you want to be saved. Yeah, (laughs) look, guys, we're making a lot of jokes here, but it's about to get bad. Um, Oh, God. So (laughs) we got to get to another one of the reasons why we put a blanket content warning at the beginning of the show now. So he enters Hyam's compound and he comes upon a scene of dripping blood, gore, and dismembered bodies. Ugh, yeah, this is like, when I was reading this, because one of my favorite books is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. This is about as gruesome as, like, when they find, like, the basement full of, like, emaciated human cattle. Essentially, it's about that level of gruesomeness. Is that a Cormac McCarthy spoiler? I've never read about that book. Yeah, it's, well, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if, you, if you've uh, never read The Road by Cormac McCarthy, spoilers, there's a basement full of uh, emaciated human cattle. Bleh. Bleh. Yeah, real good time, that McCarthy. <laughs> it's bad. I actually wrote in parentheses, it's bad. Buck thinks to himself that the GC set this up to welcome someone home. They at least assume that Hyam or someone in his household has been implicated in the murder or that they wanted to send some kind of message. And he can't find Stefan. So Hannah Laura and her mother have been tied to chairs, shot in the head, and posed in very specific ways. Like, the GC guys that did this took pleasure in doing it. So now, if you're in the GC now, you're a thug. Yeah. Like, you are a, like, a monster. So that's another thing that they're doing is they're dehumanizing the enemy at this point by basically being like, oh, these guys are basically Nazis. They enjoyed doing this. Yeah, and this was, a, 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 like, I guess we could infer supposed to be a, a message for Hyam when he got home. Like, hey, this is your family. I can only assume, yeah, that we can get to you. Yeah. And we're going to punish you for something that we assume, you know, you are involved in. Yeah. Uh, whether it's, you know, treason or uh, dissent, you know, because he did a little while back go on TV and disagree with the party line and really kind of throw a wrench in things to the GC. So they got some reasons to be mad at Hyam. Like his good grace has run out. 
And we end this little section with a couple of lines, uh, one that he's confused that he can't find Stefan because in his Middle Eastern manness, <laughs> come on, Ugh. stop it, Jerry. Hey, um, coming in real hard with like the casually racist <laughs> Uh, Tim, we haven't, uh, we've kind of been skimping on, uh, some, like, ugh, descriptors. What, what we, I'll just throw in, like, a uh, Middle Eastern, uh, madness. And then, buddy, uh, before we close out yeah. chapter three, I think, uh, we're getting a little introduction to somebody that you liked very much. This, this character that's about to be introduced is probably my favorite GC uh, member thus far. Right, because it's a David scene, and he's about to meet the, I think he's the Minister of the yeah, Arts yeah, or the Fine Min Arts? Yeah, the Minister of the Arts and Sciences wing of the global community. Okay, why don't you tell me a little bit about this fella? <laughs> well, all right, so this guy's name is Guy Blod, hard G, the French way, and Blod, dry when cod, is in, uh, Scandinavian, and this is like the most fruity, egotistical. Oh, I'm an artiste. And he's additionally, guy. and I say this in a way that is not derogatory, I am describing the stereotype. He is a screaming queen. Yes. <laughs> Just a sassy, limp wristed. The lisp isn't written out, but you can hear it. He is the highest form of caricature of a 1990s flamboyantly gay man. Yeah, and I get, and like, I've been wanting another gay character for a while ever since Verna just like, I don't know, is Verna just dead? I don't know. I mean, I guess we can just assume that Verna got got in yeah. one of the judgments, unless she comes back. I don't remember I her I don't coming think back. she does. So. so yeah, rest in peace, Verna, I guess. Yeah, MIA. Yeah. <laughs> Going off of uh, Tim's books, uh, he is a very uh, angry gay. He is not. Yeah, he's, he's gone beyond unhappy. Yeah, he's he now an angry gay. Yeah. <laughs> I found a whole other level of power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, so we're going to have to unpack Guy Blood for a second. Do you have any choice quotes from him? <sighs> Let's see. Well, first of all, he doesn't ever d pronounce David um, Hasid's name right. It's Hayseed. He calls him Hayseed. I think he's doing that on purpose later on after David him off. Mm -hmm. He was considered a genius, but David, though admittedly no expert, considered his work laughably gaudy and de decidedly profane. The more shocking and anti-God, the better. And I just said, oh, come on. There's some background here. And now I don't know. I mean, I know you were alive and around for kind of this era of culture war in the 90s. No, I don't remember any of it. Um, there was a specific photograph. Oh, God. And I think that it encapsulates, as a work of art, conservative evangelical Christians' beef with, like, the high art community. Yeah. Uh, just sort of like the artistic community in general or their disdain for artistic expression outside of the bounds of tradition, obviously. Yeah. Because, you know, much like certain segments online, reject modernity to embrace tradition. Yeah, it's not scary at all. Oof. There was a photo in 1987 by a photographer named Andre Serrano. Okay. Have you ever heard of Piss Christ? No. Um, I think it was also called The Immersion. Um, no, I, oh God. We may have to share this on the Facebook because we're so good at doing that when we say that on the show. <laughs> we may have to do this or somebody find it and share it or in the Discord because... It is a very famous photograph. It caused a lot of controversy. It has been vandalized. Uh, prints of it have been vandalized a couple times. They've showed up in museums. 
It's just a photograph. Okay. Of a traditional Catholic style crucifix. So the cross with the body of Christ on it. You know what you would think of as a crucifix as opposed to like a decorative cross. Submerged in a vat, clear vat, of the artist's urine. Oh, okay. I'm going to show you the photo. Okay. It's not a bad photo. It's actually kind of cool looking. I wouldn't even know that was piss if you didn't tell me. If you didn't call it piss Christ, we wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what it is. Okay. Um, And there's a lot that goes into that. I'm not going to go over the saga of piss Christ, but. I guess um, that's my deep dive after this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's your homework assignment. Go look up the saga of piss Christ. But the photographer himself is an avowed Catholic. Huh. Um, You know, he's like, look, this was not meant to be blasphemous. This is a form of expression and and how icons are commodified. And, you know, I'm just trying to make a a statement here. But it's art, so you're going to interpret it the way that you want. Obviously did not go over very well with Christians um, or conservatives in general. There were conservative, you know, AM type radio hosts who are just, they're not Christians or they would not like brand themselves even religious. You know, your Neil Bortz types, if anyone knows who that is, who were just like, oh, this is just vulgar. Yeah. You know, like they, they kind of went after that. So Gee, in the context of the story, is representing every artist who's ever done anything that, that the evangelicals consider profane. Yeah. The adding on of, and I don't ever think that they say that he's gay. Yeah, I don't but think you he can does. read exactly the type of stereotype that he's trying to fulfill, mm-hmm. right? I even wrote Harvey Firestein <laughs> in here because in my head he's Harvey Firestein. Yeah, that's what Guy Blaud represents, and he's going to come back a few times in this book because his work that he's going to start on actually ends up being kind of plot relevant. After kind of a rocky first meeting with David over the phone, in which he's very demanding, he's very bitchy. And he starts making demands of David. David switches gears to start looking for abandoned buildings in downtown Chicago because it looks like the Trib Force might need a new safe house. Yeah. Do you remember if it's because he got the intel about Hattie or? I, th- I think so. I think he got the intel. I about think he Hattie. does. And yeah. as soon as we know that Hattie's in the wind, like, oh crap, well, we need a new safe house. Mm-hmm. Then we end on the line, oh, sorry, guy because he pronounces it guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought you were male because he uh, won't let him call him sir, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what a what a weird thing to to just throw out there randomly, I guess. It's like a mild like transphobic thing. Actually, I, I, it almost reads that way, but it's so clumsy I'll, that I don't think it lands. Yeah, and you know, uh, real quick, I was actually talking to a viewer this week about that and uh, she asked me the question, do you think if Left Behind was written today, we would have more kind kind of like trans panic esque stuff yes. being thrown in there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> there would be like a weird scene where like the GC chase somebody into a bathroom and there's like a trans woman in there and the trans woman like tattles to the GC about yeah I feel like it would also get like looped in with like for some reason like there would be an abortion clinic and sex reassignment surgery center oh yeah yeah definitely and they would say something like you know that they're messing with God's design or something like that and that it was disgusting like they would they would not be mild Mm -hmm. about it which because we've talked about that before that like because it was the 90s and the culture war wasn't at the fever pitch that it has been I think in our adult lifetime that there kind of soft-handed with a lot of the stuff yeah yeah now, yeah the stereotypes are ugly and you know the way that they portray characters is not positive but it's just not as in your face gross yeah as i think it would be now because sorry the audience that you are talking to that would be the mainstream now 
consumes media differently. And I don't want to say like the conservative evangelicals in your audience now are dumber, but they are consuming media in a different way that it has to be more straight down the line, bite-sized Marvel movie kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, so it has to be spoon-fed and a little bit more sound bite oriented. So I don't think that there would be any subtlety. Yeah, definitely. Trying not to sound like a coastal elitist liberal <laughs> here. <laughs> Whoops, that's a self-report. <laughs> so we're getting into chapter three now. Ray is making his way to Greece. And at this point, man, I'm real tired of Ray's internal monologue about the rapture. Like, we get it, dude. You got left behind. You're a different person than you were before. Stop saying it over and over. Every time we get a moment alone with Ray, whether he's in a cockpit, on a riverbank, in a car, in his room, whatever, we get the same rehash of his relationship with Irene and what a different guy he was then and what a different guy he is now and how much he wants to see his family. and. It how the world post-rapture has changed. Dude, we get it. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where whenever these sections on the audiobook come up, I'm like, oh, thank God, this this chapter just got a minute uh, shorter. Fast forward 30 seconds, fast forward 30 seconds. All right. And so we're not even going to dwell on it. Like, it's gotten to the point where it has gone from an interesting insight into a character to bad. Yeah. It's just bad writing now. It almost kind of reads like, Jerry's like, man, I got to reach word count. So he's just like copy pasting stuff from previous books and rewriting it a little in bit. In this specific book where word count is comparatively low. Yeah. Like, I don't think we mentioned this. This is a shorter book. I was looking at it on the shelf next to my other ones. It, it's just padding. Like, I don't like this. But we get to turn from that into some stuff that I do think is kind of interesting that we haven't quite touched on before. Ray takes a moment to kind of ask God for forgiveness for being such a little head in the last book. And the way that he does it, can you read the prayer or kind of the introspection that he has there? Let's see. In fact, he was fairly certain he didn't, but the hound of heaven was pursuing him, and Rayford would have to be thoroughly deluded or dishonest to turn and run now. He could cover his ears and hum as he did as a child when his mother tried to scold him, or he could turn on the radio pretending to see if the satellites had been realigned, or tried the phone to test the global system. Maybe he could take the plane off autopilot and busy himself navigating the craft through the trackless skies. Deep down, he could never live with himself if he resorted to those evasive tactics. So Rayford endured a shudder of fear. He was going to face this, to square his shoulders to God and take the heat. All right, he said aloud. What? (laughs) (laughs) Couple things here. This is what Christians would kind of see as a model for a devotional session with God or like a prayer that you are opening yourself up, almost kind of Jedi-like. And there's a couple of Jedi moments that we're getting in this section where they are opening themselves up, not to like the power of the universe and the force, but like opening themselves up to God, who is omnipresent, who is everywhere. That is something that a Christian would tell you you should do, that you should humble yourself before God. And I know that amongst right-wing evangelicals, humility seems to be in short supply. (laughs) Right. I don't think they think that about themselves. So this is kind of a model of that. And they wrote that the hound of heaven was pursuing. You don't hear about the hound of heaven very much. Yeah, this is actually the first time I've I've heard that, like, that I can remember. It's usually the other place. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that is a, that's a term. That's something that you hear when you feel the pricking of your heart, you know, that God, the way it was explained to me is that once you have said that prayer and you are his child, he is going to treat you as such and he will seek you out. 
Yeah. So when you start to run away or you start to fall away, just like the shepherd with his, you know, his hundred sheep, one walks away, he leaves the 99, he goes back, pulls them in. That's some Christian sort of contemporary theology there yeah. for you. So we're back to Buck again. And um, I'm not going to dwell too long on this because it's just more gore. I mentioned dismembering earlier that he does find Stefan. All of his limbs have been cut off and he is arranged in almost like a serial killer type pose. So it's just adding gore on top of gore. We haven't gotten some good gore segments in a minute. Um, I guess not since the Tuttles. Yeah. So then we get to Zion. I think this is the first we've seen of Zion in this book so far. Mm-hmm. Um, Zion didn't get a lot in Assassins either. He's hanging out at the safe house with Chloe and with Kenny. I think they're the only three that are there right now because right. everybody's kind of out on assignment. Ke- Kenny's a precious baby. He kind of is, right? Yeah. He calls Zion Uncazone. Uncazone. That was cute. Shit. I like anytime Kenny's on screen, I'm like, this is I'm I'm enthralled in this Sims baby plot right now. And it's really funny because like even Chloe was like, man, having a kid was a mistake. Things are getting bad. He's in danger. And Zion kind of verbalizes what we were thinking when we were reading this. It's like, well, he's a cute kid, man. He's at least making this somewhat bearable. Right. So Chloe and Zion kind of have a conversation about children in general. And we get a little account of the North Korea-like parades that used to be in front of Carpathia, where they would all, like, chant his name, and they would sing songs to him, all in unison, super North Korea-type stuff. Yeah. Then we get the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Or rather, I guess, the anti-Lord's Prayer that they would recite to him. They would get kids, like, barely old enough to speak, and they would say this... Our father in New Babylon, Carpathia be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then it cuts off because Sion turned off the TV. Yeah, he's like, I can't listen to this anymore. Which, all right, it's not a good one, man. Like, if you're going to pull from anything biblical, like, be a little more creative. Like, just taking the Lord's Prayer and changing the words. I understand that to an evangelical audience or a Christian audience, they are profaning the Lord's Prayer, I don't really think that's that bad because the Lord's Prayer was meant to be instructional. Mm -hmm. It was meant to be an example, not like an exact model. So the putting the Lord's Prayer on a pedestal always seemed weird to me. Yeah. Because Jesus was like, I do it like this. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an idea. Now, now go. It's your relationship with God, man. I could go on about that. But clearly this is supposed to be a shock moment where it's like, oh my God, they're profaning the prayer. And then we get Real dark. Oh yeah, the, the the weird trolley problem that we're, you're giving, where, where it's uh, either let your baby be surrendered to the global community or kill your baby. Yeah. So Chloe's been doing a lot of thinking, yeah, a lot of research on how to kill babies. You heard me right. She's yeah, been looking yeah. up how to kill her baby because she's kind of at the point where uh, if we get compromised, I would rather kill Kenny and myself than hand him over to the GC. And rather than immediately going like, no, don't do that, which he does say that. Yeah. Zion kind of tries to play mind games with her a little bit. And he's like, no, say what you would do. Because Chloe says, I will kill myself and commit infanticide. And Zion's like, no, 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 no. Say what you're going to do. She's like, you heard me. I'll kill myself and commit infanticide. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, say it. And like, he can't get her to say, I'll kill myself and kill my baby. Yeah. And It's real weird that apparently, like, conservatives think people use words to mask things. Yeah. They don't like euphemisms when they believe it is deceptive and masking something that they don't like. He says, you're just like the abortionists who call their babies fetuses. First of all, abortionist is 
like such a Rush Limbaugh word, you know? <laughs> right. And it's just so uncomfortable. Like this whole scene, and he kind of talks Chloe down from like the whole idea. For someone who is supposed to be written strong like Chloe, this is not a good scene. Like, it feels very out of character. Yeah, and they return to this, like, several times throughout the book. Yeah, to the point where I'm just like, please don't. We haven't had, like, uncomfortable, like, baby stuff in a few books, so we, we gotta, like, really step up our game and just put this out of left field. Yeah, and, um... We also get, like, the extra shock value as soon as, like, uh, like, he's like, put it in a sentence. I will, I'll kill my baby. Baby, Kenny exulted, running to her right after that just to be like, this is what you're gonna kill, Chloe? Oh, my God. It seems like a low-key, like, abortion thing. Like, because, you know, you gotta think about the times. Abortion's still a hot culture war issue even then. Probably the biggest one. So it kind of feels like they're likening her killing her walking, talking child as the same as abortion, I guess. Like, it just seems weird. Right, but, like, they don't... They only bring up the, like, abortion angle, I think, like, once, though. So... And Maybe they just not, start then. milk this scene over and over, so I don't know. It's weird. We'll, we'll return to... Like I said, we'll return to this. Yeah. So we get another David and Guy scene, and it's David meeting with Guy's whole entourage. And basically, they all dress like... You know that old SNL skit with Will Ferrell where he's the fashion guy and he has the weird bowl cut and the tiny cell phone. Yes, yes. They're all that. <laughs> Silk shirts and slacks and like wearing sunglasses inside and like wearing a bunch of rings on their fingers and chains on their necks and stuff. Like I said, you can almost hear the lisp. We find out during the discussion that Viv Ivans, who is, if we remember from Assassin's, Apparently, Nikolai's only living relative, his aunt, mm -hmm. um, like I said, she's elaborated on much more in the prequels. She is working on some kind of regional numbering thingy, but we're going to find more about that yeah. later on in, the, in one of the scenes. But so Guy finally get to hear what his magnum opus, what his great work is going to be. Yeah, he's going to make a bronze iron statue of Nikolai. Now, what did this remind you of? Kind of like, uh, what is that? The statue of David, that like Roman, like what's the, what's the popular statue with his dick out? David. David, okay. Yeah, Michelangelo's yeah. David. Yeah, Michelangelo's David. I can definitely see that, especially when uh, he says something about, yeah, you can just put a bunch of weights in the shoes to keep the statue from falling over because it's going to be hollow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he goes, shoes, my dear boy. This statue is going to be all oh. natural. <laughs> and he almost says it with like the lilt. It's so yeah, bad. He does. What it reminded me of was the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. Ah. Yeah, the image of the king of Nebuchadnezzar, and, you know, they wouldn't bow before it and everything, so. Yeah. But also with the Daniel story and the statue that gets, you know, that's got all the layers mm -hmm. of bronze and iron and gold, and then it gets shattered by the mountain, which is something that Tim pulls from for his prophecy, so. Yeah, that's Graven images of yeah. world leaders is kind of a big thing. Yes. Which. I find it very funny throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, graven images of world leaders equals bad, that American evangelicals are so kind of wrapped up in the, the patriotism thing, uh, patriotism TM. They're like, why are people mad at Mount Rushmore? You should worship our big rock faces. How dare you? <laughs> um, it's very funny. This whole American evangelicalism is, is nothing if not a mess of contradictions. Yeah, and David in this is like, okay, so you're gonna have a naked statue of Carpathia. It's gonna be like in the palace, right? It's like, within the palace, dear boy, this will be the objet de art of history, my piece de resistance. It shall stand in the palace courtyard, not 30 feet from where the potentate lies in state. 
Italian now? I, I don't, I guess. The, the potentate's penis <laughs> out in the open for the world to see. Okay, I got a bigger penis. <laughs> And he goes on to talk about how his art is divinely inspired, which again is another profaning of an idea that like you mentioned Michelangelo's David. Yeah. A lot of Christians will tell you that Michelangelo was divinely inspired. And I mean, not every Christian believes that and probably fewer evangelicals believe that, but there's that through line that, you know, yeah. art can be divinely inspired. And that just doesn't cover visual art too. Like people would say that like Handel when he wrote the Messiah was inspired by God, you know? And I said that he's kind of exoticizing these people. And we said that earlier that they're trying to dehumanize the GC. So making them not only artists and coded gay, but also kind of weird freaks that want to see a penis, <laughs> um, which I guess goes right along with the gay coding is yeah. just it's so much. The GC are being painted as less than human. Yes. That's going to serve a purpose in a few books. We're on to chapter four. Ray finally touches down in Greece and... We get a lot of the Greek stuff starting here. So the Greek church has exponentially grown, um, but it's underground. More Ray introspection. He's like, man, God, I'm really sorry. I got too emotional. And when he gets there, he learns that he has been named the number one suspect because of the fingerprints they found on the gun. Yep. The gun you should have dumped, but that you just dropped in the middle of the crowd. So good job, buddy. And he is set to rendezvous with Lucas Miklos, a.k.a. Laszlos, and uh, members of the Greek church. Yes. Apparently, this APB for Ray goes out to every GC peacekeeper all at once because it also saves Buck from the trap set by the GC to get him in Hyam's palace. Yes. Um, I don't think we mentioned this, so I'm going to say it. Um, I, I think, like, the TVs still work somehow, but, so, but the phone lines don't. So some information the GC can still get around. Yeah, I guess radio still works and some kind of communication. I don't know. It's unclear, and I don't even think Jerry sat and figured this all out. Yeah. <laughs> that is to say, there is a GC patrol that is coming by Hyam's compound, and they're about to discover Buck, but immediately they get the APB on Ray, and they all scatter to go look for him instead. Yes. But one thing that we find with Buck inside the compound is Hyam's workshop. Yeah, it's completely empty. Spotless. Yeah, spotless. Like someone like cleaned the room as if they were going to use the room for something else. Yes, yeah, the dust is gone. The iron shavings are gone. The clutter is gone. The weird rags are gone. It's spotless. As if no one had been doing any work in there at all. Super weird. Yeah, weird, huh? From there, we get Zion. And this is where some of the other spiritual superpower stuff happens. Zion sees Ray on TV. He also sees this. We had a lot of this concurrent action stuff. Yeah. Sees Ray on TV and opts to intercede for him. Now, I think we've talked about intercession previously, but what's your understanding? Uh, well, it's when you ask, I don't even know how to really just, it's like when you ask God to like step into someone else's life or like, hey, I want to like help in this person's life. What can I do or what can you do for them? Right. It's kind of like that. Yeah. And, and that's one interpretation of it. And I, it can be as simple as praying on behalf of someone else or praying for someone else. But I feel especially qualified to talk about this because in the book, it says it's primarily from the fundamentalist and Pentecostal tradition. Well, boys, All right, this is your as a former Pentecostal. Let me uh, <laughs> sit down and tell you a thing or two, huh? intercession like i said on the far low end just praying for someone else lord i feel a pull on my heart right now to pray for gavin i don't know what he's going through but i would pray for him that you will reach out to him you'll guide him you'll comfort him you know whatever he needs right now lord i'm praying for gavin right in another context taking from scripture that jesus 
is interceding with God the Father on behalf of us, basically being our advocate before mm-hmm. the throne of God. The idea of intercession is more of an emotional, deeply spiritual, almost like Dragon Ball Z, lend me your energy. Yeah. In a prayer sense where you are offering yourself up before God to stand in the gap for someone. And it's hard to explain if you are not deeply into the almost mystical way that Pentecostals treat prayer, spirituality, and the world in general. Mm -hmm. Zion does a pretty good job of explaining it, that you have to be almost willing to take that person's place spiritually take their struggles onto you, take their sins onto you. And whether that actually happens is not doctrinally clear. At least it never was to me, but you are lending them some of your spiritual power and energy or almost putting your spirit in place of theirs. Yeah. Come what may and being willing to make whatever sacrifices on a spiritual level or an emotional level that you would need to do for them before God. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I know it's very woo-woo, but, but hey, that's Pentecostalism for you, buddy. It, it almost sounds like you're praying with the intent to try to do some action, maybe? Kind, kind of. Kind you're of? manifesting on behalf of someone else. Okay. Because, again, like I've said in previous episodes, but not gone into detail, the Pentecostal side of evangelical Christianity, very mystical. Yes, they're not, they would never call it that. In fact, they'd probably punch you for calling it that. But it has a lot in common with the practices that you would see in kind of new agey type stuff. It's just got an older tradition and all the power flows from God and not from like the universe or yourself or crystals or whatever. Yeah. Lots of manifestation type stuff um, is what we would see that as now. And he lets Chloe know after he's begun this prayer session that Ray has come up on TV and he is now a wanted man. So we're back to David again. And something kind of cool happens. And I did some research on this earlier today to make sure I was right. He's walking down the hall and he sees Viv Ivins' office. Yeah. The lights are out except for the safety lights. And there's a map on her desk. David, being the smart guy that he is, takes the opportunity to kind of peek his head in there. He's yeah, like, just snoop around, see what's going on. And he's kind of like trying to talk himself up. He's like, hey, look, man, I mean, if she catches me, then, you know, I was just kind of walking around, just kind of seeing what's up, you know? I saw the light on, and I decided to turn the light off for you, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. On this map, he sees that each new region of the 10, the borders haven't been redrawn, but they've all been assigned a number. Okay. There's like 216, and 2, and 72, and 30, and minus 6, and 0. So all these weird numbers. And, they, and if you look at them initially, they don't make a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I even, like, kind of was, like, looking at these numbers, like, what does this mean? So when you look at them, okay. every number of those 10 numbers is some operation of 6, 6, and 6. Ah. So, like, 216 is 6 times 6 times 6. 6 is, like, 6 minus 6 plus 6. Mm-hmm. Um, 7 is... Six divided by six plus six. Yep. It's all operations of six. And I actually sat with a calculator and did all of these today. Okay. To kind of be like, okay, did these all work out? They do. Honestly, it's clever. It's not that clever, but it's clever and it's yeah. kind of neat. And it's just like, oh, we just want to name all the regions six, six, six. Cause like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we hear from Annie that they're bringing in the evidence of the lectern in the backdrop and they're going to be bringing it basically to the GC crime lab and they're going to take it apart. I'm going to skip over the next Ray and Laszlo section because honestly, there's not a lot there. Yeah. But back to Buck. He has decided, all right, he's found this terrible scene. 
I got to find Hyam. I got to find out what happened to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to be leaving Israel without finding Hyam. He also starts to ask for some spiritual gifts. And I know we've talked about gifts in the past. He wants to know where Hyam is. And he says to himself, like, clairvoyance is hogwash. And I just wrote, unless it's from God. So he prays for some divine assistance and kind of like quiets his mind. And I was like, it's more Jedi stuff. Like you can almost hear like the force music playing. Yeah, and it even goes like, and there was that great supernatural battle between good and evil that Zion wrote so much about. So he's going like Sith Jedi stuff. And we're going to get more of that spiritual battle later in this book. Um, we're not going to get to it in this section though. And I wrote at the end of this chapter, this is just magic. This is spiritual practice, manifestation. It's all the new age stuff. It's just got a God coat of paint on it. Yeah. But if you asked any evangelical, they would be like, well, the enemy is going to parody and pervert that which is of God. Yeah, yeah. So when you're doing your magical practices, you're pulling from yourself, which is inherently fallen and corrupted by sin when you really need to be pulling from God. All right, so chapter five. Here we go. We get more Jedi stuff. We're back to Chloe and Zion, and Zion is praying so hard in his intercession for Rey that he believes he has an out-of-body experience. Yeah, and even he's kind of like, you know, all out-of-body experiences are just fabrications, drug-induced uh, hallucinations on deathbeds, etc. Like, he's even like, all right, that's like hokey magic stuff. Which is something that the Bible kind of tells you to do. There is a verse about testing spirits. I think most Christians would carry that forward. You know, most kind of middle of the road Christians would carry that forward into test spiritual experiences, approach it with a degree of skepticism, or mm -hmm. at least that was what I was taught. Because even in the Pentecostal tradition, people can be pretty reasonable yeah. about stuff. Like, clearly there's the wacko end of, of things. But in a situation like this, if you came to most of my pastors, they wouldn't immediately say, oh, you had a uh, spiritual experience. and be like, you know, maybe you just were having a daydream and you didn't digest your ham sandwich properly, <laughs> you know. But applies an amount of skepticism. But he's like, okay, well, maybe something is there and that's going to get followed up on later just not this episode so put a pin in that whole out of body thing and we get a um a little bit from acts 217 which is the reference to your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams in the yep. last days that is another prophecy and i'm putting that in air quotes passage that tim kind of pulls from um is that second chapter of acts second chapter of acts also a famous contemporary christian band Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From like the 70s, 80s, I think. Oh, okay. Um, they mentioned, so if my dad killed Carpathia, why would he even do that, knowing that it's temporary? And I just wrote, yeah, good question. And we get a little more of the war rhetoric, my favorite thing. Oh. When Zion's like, oh, we're at war. Killing the enemy isn't murder. I'm like, I thought we put that away last book. I thought we did, but apparently not. Yeah, here we go. Ugh. Yeah, it's like the whole, like, you know, killing and murder are, are actually two separate things. Yeah, the thing you hear from, uh, from most Christians when you try to argue like the the ten commandments you know thou shalt not kill yeah it's like no no it says thou shalt do no murder and i'm like actually what it says is something in hebrew so let's unpack that for a minute mm -hmm. but anyway we cut back to david he's meeting with abdullah and mac and for some reason abdullah has a pita sandwich in his pocket yeah he a, a pungent pita sandwich. i don't know why i it, it, i think Jerry might have been going for something there and then just kind of forgot to pay it off. Yeah. If he does pay it off later and I missed it, then I'm dumb. But I don't think the pita sandwich gets explained. 
And we get an important piece of information. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I want to say, he, uh, we, we get a return to uh, Are You Pout? Uh, oh, because yeah. Because you, you never finished your dinner in Abdullah. This is uh, Being pout is still in his vernacular. It's like, oh, if I am pout, it is because I'm exhausted and want to go to bed. Is there anyone sleeping around here? It seems like everyone's about. Everyone's about, and yes, I am pout. <laughs> So we get a little important info drop from Mac. Every news channel is like, Rayford Steele killed Carpathia. Literally no one inside the GC, like upper echelons are believing that. Yeah. They're still looking for the killer. They're like, yeah, there's no way. So we get it pretty much sunk here that Ray didn't do it. Yeah. Um, he's definitely the scapegoat. He'll probably go down for it, but he didn't do it. And we find out that in order to find out more, David is going to listen in on the autopsy. See if we can figure it out. So yep. I guess we can assume that we have our assassin now, don't we? I meant Ray. Yeah. And not the actual perp. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Ray, though, he is currently hiding in a ditch next to the road waiting for Laszlo's to come pick him up. And we get a whole saga with like some GC vehicles with their lights off, like rolling past him. And it, it ends up being kind of a nothing burger. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, are they going to find him? And they don't. So it just doesn't really go anywhere. And then we're back to Buck, and he is racking his brain for, okay, if I were Hyam and I had to hide somewhere or maybe go, like, run away, be somewhere safe, or meet me, where would I be? And he's following that leading from the spirit, and he goes, you know what? Can't be at Teddy Cog Stadium. It's too public. I know a place that we've been together that yep. no one would ever think to look for the international journalist and the, you know, Nobel laureate scientist. Yeah, his, I'm gonna go to the harem. Yeah, yeah, go to the cyberpunk bar. The cyberpunk bar. He pays a cab to take him there, and he's like, you know, that place is closed, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Just, just take me. Yeah. Sure enough, he walks up, sees a pajama leg hanging out of a tree, <laughs> shines his light, and then like he just sees lowering out of the tree, just in full like nightwear. It's high. Yeah, and he almost like jumps and does a little flip and like a ta da. Hiram Rosenzweig, healthy as a horse, not a trace of stroke, is like, hello, Cameron. You found me. <laughs> you win a beer. <laughs> yep. So a more robust, not stroke victim, Hiram Rosenzweig. Pause that for a second. We're going to come back to it. So Yvonne Ray makes his way into the car. They elude the GC and he meets Laszlos and his pastor, Demetrius Demeter. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote Greek McGreek name. <laughs> You know, this guy was Greek. We named him Demetrius Demeter. <laughs> We're back to Zion again. He says that his experience must have been a dream, which he thinks puts him in the, uh, the, the old man. Old man. Yeah. And then we get a verse from Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, chapter one, verses 15 through 18, which is kind of a deep cut. You don't get readings from Obadiah. Very yeah, I couldn't even recall that Obadiah was even a Bible yep. book. Uh, comes before Jonah. Okay. So you don't hear about Obadiah unless it's like the name of like an old prospector in a Western movie. <laughs> All right. And it's 15 through 18. Uh -huh. All right. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink um, continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Izu will be stubble. 
and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Asu. The Lord has spoken. So there's a lot there, and to kind of unpack that for a second, this is a verse that is used to justify some forms of Zionism, basically that the inheritance of Jacob being the land of Israel and all of the birthrights and everything that goes along with the nation of Israel, reference to Esau, uh, Jacob's brother. Not going to take you guys to a full Sunday school lesson right now, but they're two brothers, Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. So we're going through the, the patriarchal line here. Esau was the elder brother who sold his birthright to Jacob in kind of a Thor and Loki story, Jacob being the trickster. And so Jacob, whose name later became Israel, who was the sort of patriarchal figure from which the nation descended, is going to claim his inheritance, meaning that the that Israel will have, you know, its own land back, you know, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. So this is a prophecy, at least the way that Tim is putting it. Part of the end times will be that Israel will rise up again, mm-hmm. you know, and will be sanctified and and protected by God. Yeah. Zion himself actually says he is claiming the promise of that passage. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Uh, I have You're claiming, I'm going to claim this verse in the name of Jesus. You ever uh, heard that? I've never heard that, no. When you speak scripture, and this is maybe another Pentecostal or, or like more charismatic evangelical thing, there's a lot of name it and claim it. You know, and again, we're back to the sort of like esoteric mysticism thing. Yeah. That when you give something a name or when you put words to it, almost in kind of an Aleister Crowley way, when you speak the word of God and you verbalize that you are manifesting or claiming that thing, it's kind of an as above, so below, or on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, mm. you are going to make it happen. Yeah. You are going to believe it into existence. You are going to believe it in existence as long as it's in accordance with God's will. Because remember, you got to say that too. Yeah. Um, but you're going to want it real bad and you're going to like manifest it into existence. So away from that, as we start to close the chapter, real quick aside with Leah, she is trying to get the message out that Hattie's in the wind. She's going to compromise the safe house. So David takes that information and is looking for new safe houses in the hot zone of Chicago. We need a little bit of a reminder. The reason why the safe house has been so safe at this point is because remember, Chicago got nuked. Yeah. It didn't really. It got like fake nuke. Like there's it no got fallout. Fake yeah, there's no fallout. So he starts looking and he finds what he thinks is the perfect place. It's called the Strong Building. Not a real building. I did look it up. I was like, I've never heard of that. I don't think that's real. It's not. And he starts to case this place and like get into their security cameras and see if it's something that could house the tribulation force as kind of less of a safe house and more of a fortress. Mm-hmm. And seems like it might start to work out. Okay. And we end the chapter with finding out that officially Leon is now going to be announced as the new potentate. Yep. And that's going to take us into our final chapter of this section, chapter six. Ray goes with Laszlos and Demetrius. Um, they have their own safe house. So it seems like, uh, you know, worldwide believers are adopting the tribulation force strategy, staying underground, having safe houses, which considering that they're getting their information from Zion, that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And Demetrius pulls Ray aside, and we get, I think, our last moment of Christian superpowers in this section. Yeah. And he says, hey, um, Ray, I want you to know that in our church here in Greece, most of us are bestowed with spiritual gifts. Uh, we have the gift of evangelism. We just tell people about Jesus, and they're just ready to convert. Like, we're doing great here. 
but I also have a power. I have the gift of discernment. He's like, now that's different from the gift of knowledge. The gift of knowledge in this context basically means that like God tells you stuff that you shouldn't know Mm -hmm. where you can basically like not quite prophecy, but like you sense things and you know things that you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. You have the pull of the the spirit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. But it usually ends up being more specific. Like that person across from me in the Wendy's aisle almost had a car accident today. You know, something like that, like that kind of stuff. It's spooky, but discernment is more about a vibe. Mm -hmm. You know, you can look at somebody and know, like you sense their energy and you're just like, you're going through something right now. I don't know if it's a divorce. I don't know if it's um, a sickness or maybe financial hardship or something, but you need to know right now, Gavin, God sees what you're going through and he wants you to know this. Yeah. You know, something like that. So Demetrius proceeds to do just that to Ray and kind of cold reads him. I can tell you without fear of contradiction, that you are a man who at this very moment is broken before God. Despite the news, I have no idea whether you shot Nikolai Carpathia or if you even tried to. I don't know if you were there or had the weapon in question or if the global community is framing you because they know your allegiances. But I discern your brokenness, and it is because you have sinned. Rayford reacts very emotionally to this, and not in like a negative way. He's just like, He's moved. Oh, God sees me. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. He's very vulnerable. Yeah. But it brings him a sort of peace. And that's kind of what the whole gifts of the spirit thing is to do. You're supposed to use them to encourage your brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what happens to Ray. And he sleeps like a baby for like the first time. Yeah. In a long time. So we're back to Buck and Hyam. And we learn some stuff. If you guys haven't kind of figured it out already, we're, we're kind of putting the pieces together on what's going on with Hyam. So he's been faking a stroke. Studying the blade. Studying the blade. Working out every day before dawn. He's limber and spry and The healthiest he's been in years. Uh Uh-huh. He goes over his workout routine. He's like, look, Buck, I I couldn't tell you. I didn't want you to be involved in this scheme. Wonder what scheme that could be. Hmm. He's been moving his power chair around the house to even try to confuse his house staff like Yakov and Stefan and Laura we pretty much get Buck drawing down the accusation he goes I know what I saw Hyam and Hyam continues to dance around and deny without directly saying it Mm -hmm. what do we think's going on here well do we wanna you know what yeah a ninja killed Nikolai (laughs) Carpathia (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yeah. <laughs> so that sword got put to good use. Hyam Rosenzweig killed Nikolai Carpathia. Hyam buff Rosenzweig. Yeah, I know, man. He even it's, like, yeah, like takes out one of his muscles, like, look, Buck. It's the second nerd character who has been working out all the time. Yeah. And yeah, so we'll get more into that in the next episode, but and the specifics, but we can pretty much say with certainty that it was not Hattie Durham, it was not Rayford Steele. It was Hyam Rosenzweig by the Lady Ninja with the samurai sword. (laughs) That was that was the least like if you would have been like, I will give you a million dollars if you can guess this correctly. I wouldn't guess Mr. Quote unquote stroke victim would have been the guy and the prestige. So I guess we got to hand it to Jerry on that, huh? Yeah, like, on one hand, I I don't like it just because, like, it seems, like, totally random. But at the same time, 
Okay, dude. You made a ninja kill Carpathia. But, okay. And then he also very literally fulfilled prophecy. Yeah. Because the Antichrist was killed by a wound to the head with the sword. Yeah, with a mall ninja sword. Yes. Yeah, he's oh, so- more than a mall. Remember, it's his, it's his super thin yeah. cyber blade. <laughs> like I said, we're going to get to the uh, the autopsy and the specifics later, Like, but we're just going to go ahead and talk about it now because it is too fun to not go over. <sighs> That's going to kind of get us to the last section of this chapter. Uh, Hyam and Buck are going to try to find a hotel. They book a room at a place called The Night Visitors. <laughs> In downtown Jerusalem, the last that we hear is that Zion is in the safe house, kind of barely sleeping. He's sleeping on and off in like cat naps, trying not to miss the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And he gets a call from Leah who says, "Uh, you guys need to bug out to the underground shelter like now because Hattie has probably compromised us. Yeah. So now the race against time is going to start for David to find a new safe house, Zion, Chloe and Kenny to escape for them to infiltrate this new building and set everything up. And that is going to be something we will explore in the next couple of episodes here on I Survived the Rapture. How are you feeling about the indwelling so far? Okay, so like, it started out, like I said, very action-packed note. We got cool new characters. We got like, it's pretty much like constant stakes. It's kind of keeping up the energy of assassins. I wouldn't say it's quite assassins level, but we get some parts that are on par with that. So, you know what? I've been having fun, and, uh... So yeah. I'm liking it. Yeah, I'm yeah, with good. you. Like, it, this is fun, and I, I will tell you guys, by the end of the book, it gets even more fun. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's gonna do it for us here on I Survived the Rapture for this episode. Thank you guys again for joining us. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time... If you just lift some weights, you, you, can, you can recover from anything. That's very true. Swole is the goal. (laughs) Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSaurus Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSaurus.com and check out the IndieSaurus Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can tempt you and leave.